I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 100 of Carol Pop. Ta-da! It's sponsored by our friends at Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is someone I saw for the first time playing Carol Brady on stage in Chicago in the Annoyance Theater's 1990 production of Real Live Brady Bunch. Little did I know that Jane Lynch would go on to become one of the funniest, smartest, and most versatile and beloved comedic performers around. Lynch has won five Primetime Emmy Awards, two Screen Actors Guild Awards, and a Golden Globe. She's the rival comedian Sophie Lennon on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But he has yet one more adorable critter for us to meet. Excuse me, sir? Is this a ladies' room? Well, what do you know, Sophie Lennon? Boy, are you a sight for sore eyes. Careful, Gordon, that's how my fifth marriage started. And my fourth one ended. She's Steve Martin's stand-in on Only Murders in the Building. She's the indelible tracksuit-wearing Sue Sylvester on Glee. She played Constance Carmel in the original and revived Party Down. She was a regular on Two and a Half Men. She has hosted Hollywood Game Night and The Weakest Link. She had a breakthrough performance in Christopher Guest's Best in Show. We didn't win at Mayflower, Mm-mm. which is uh, surreal and um, was extremely disturbing. And it was so not right. It was devastating. But the silver lining of this cloud, of course, is that, you know, it brought us to a new level in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now we got to open up this, this, these offices and publish this magazine here. Mm-hmm. American Bitch, the dog magazine for women and their dogs. And also co-starred in his A Mighty Wind and For Your Consideration. She killed as the sexually charged store manager in former Carol Pop guest Judd Apatow's largely improvised The 40-Year-Old Virgin. You ever heard of the term, fuck buddy? It's what? It's a special friend. We fuck. No, I haven't heard that term. And that's just scratching the surface. You can look up the rest on IMDb. The point is, she's busy and loves to work. Or as she says about her arrival in Los Angeles from Chicago many years ago, while everybody was yawning, scratching their balls, and getting their first cup of coffee, I've done 12 things. Jane Lynch brings such focus and humor to our Carol Pop conversation. Did she know she was funny back when she was growing up in the South Chicago suburb of Dalton? Did she have a positive experience at Second City? And which soon-to-be-famous actress did she understudy? Does she prefer improvising or working with a script? Which directors have appreciated improvisation? And which have taken what she calls a police state approach to the script? Did she always want to work in comedy? When she reflects on her white-hot ambition, what was her goal? Did she have to overcome industry thinking that comedy is a man's game? How did she find success in her 40s? How important is it to project confidence? How did she enjoy performing in Funny Girl on Broadway? Are her happiest moments as a performer on stage or in front of a camera? What are her thoughts about the actor strike and how is she doing being less busy? And what was it like to sing with Olivia Newton-John on Glee? Let's get physical, physical. With typical smarts, charm, and laughter, Jane Lynch discusses all this and much more in this delightful 100th episode of Carol Pop. I'm sure you understand my point of view. We know each other. 
well, the first thing I saw you in was Real Live Brady Bunch, uh, mm-hmm. and that was uh, when I did a I did a piece about that, and Eve Plum had come in to oh. be in the Johnny Bravo episode. I mean, I lived right around the corner from where Annoyance was on Broadway for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw Code Prison Sluts there too. And then she came in, and I think there was like a per- something you guys did at Shelter, and then something else at Navy Pier, where like a bunch oh, of the Brady Navy Pier, a bunch of the yeah. Bradys came in for that. Yeah, that's right. Oh my God. But uh, I think that was the, probably the first thing I saw you in, on stage way back yeah, when. Yeah, I remember they interviewed, somebody interviewed um, the guy who played Peter, Mike, oh, not Mike looking in, Chris, Christopher. Christopher Knight. Oh, whatever. Yeah, Christopher Knight. And he said, yeah, they kind of look like us, except our clothes were cleaner. And that is so true. We got all of our clothes <laughs> like, a, a, you know, at a, a thrift shop. The, the story that I wrote for the Tribune, I remember the kicker was uh, Susan Olsen, who played Cindy, uh, after having experienced the whole thing, saying, it's weird to have warped an entire generation. We're sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was is it was such a good show for so many reasons. I mean, on the face of it, it was innocent and kind of vanilla and very vanilla. But um, the reason we did this show, and this is what we all can't kind of bonded on, was is that we thought our, our childhood should be like that. That when you pitch a fit about something and you run up to your room and you slam the door, a second later, you're going to get a gentle knock. You know, you want to talk? And and that didn't happen in most people's houses. So we all thought that uh, it was a, I mean, it was kind of disappointing in a way that our lives weren't like that. But it was a, an idealized version of, you know, what a family should be. Um, the uh, having each other's back and the unconditional love and, you know, that uh, all the great platitudes that Mike and Carol would say, like, do you, you know, find what it is you do best and do your best with it and, you know, always be nice. And, um, you know, I remember talking to the Soloways about it and, and that idea of at first is like, oh, should we do like a parody? Should we throw in jokes? And I was like, no, we're just going to play it straight it was a send-up but there was also something really sweet about it mm-hmm. and and that's and that was the thing it wasn't like just we're just making fun of stupid old no, television there was, shows there was great affection great and then affection. when Eve Plum came in you know they were like oh my god we're sitting with Jan Brady and and she's like smoking her cigarette back when you could do that and so she's like yeah I'm just a real person to you now <laughs> but uh <laughs> right but it was and then I remember then Eve Plum when she was like sort of chatting with people at shelter they were like oh my god yeah because she was just such an iconic person yeah. to them i hate yeah. the word iconic i can't believe i just used it sorry yep, you did um right well yeah. we'll, we'll just uh, we'll just zip that up we'll just we'll just <laughs> I'll, I'll put in a really smart word and we'll just like digitally insert it um <laughs> were you were you part of the annoyance ensemble at that part or at that point were you working with mcnapier on other yeah thing? well well sort of i mean what happened was the the theater was founded he he rented the space and he needed to um, fill every night with something because he had to pay the rent. So I went to the first meeting and I remember they they voted on the name Annoyance and I hated it. I thought it was stupid and <laughs> and rebellious and who'd want to go to a place called the Annoyance? And look, it's still, it's still happening. It's a great name. I think it's a great name now. Uh, I was working with Faith at Second City. She was our musical director. And uh, I think she probably said, hey, come to this thing. And um, maybe she even said, we're going to do the real live Brady. We're going to do our our episodes of the Brady Bunch. And I really wanted to do that because she and I had premiered the um, Go Ask Alice uh, with Second City, uh, the touring company. Remember that song, Go Ask Alice? We changed the lyrics and stuff. Our faith changed the lyrics and I sang it. And then eventually we had Mary Weiss sing it, who was um, uh, played Alice. Uh, So, yeah, I was at that first meeting 
And um, we got, I think we got Wednesday nights and that's, you know, I didn't do anything with them outside of the Brady Bunch though. And we were kind of the thorn in their side in the beginning. We were kind of in their opinion, even though Mick was in it, he played Bobby. He, he kind of kept a good sense of humor about it. They kind of saw us as um, selling out, even though we were literally selling out. Yeah, because you were the, the commercial show, thing they were doing. We, so they had to be right. suspicious of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So everybody, um, it was kind of cool to hate what we were doing. And when they do like this real life game show right before it, just to. Right. Well, yeah, Eric Waddell, who um, uh, was in the company and a great guy, he always wanted to be a game show host. In fact, I think he's still working in the game show world, but he wanted to be a game show host. And he said to Jill, can I do my own show? And he created it. And it was great. It was a big hit. So it was our first it was our first act was uh, the real live game show. And then we'd go into the real live Brady Bunch. It was a great night. It was a really fun, um, very well organized, you know, very well conceived and executed and then at the same time you know just kind of um, a delightful shit show so little did you know that was setting the path for you to be doing game shows later in life i had no idea yeah i hosted it once when um eric got sick <laughs> did you like yeah. it did you think oh yeah i'm gonna have to no i never wanted to do it. <laughs> it was never something that i said oh i i need to do this yeah that kind kind of came out of nowhere in fact, I've never connected the two experiences before in my mind. So thank you for doing that. You're welcome. Um, That's yeah, what we're here for. Uh, <laughs> connecting the dots. Yeah, I uh, didn't know that I was going to love um, hosting game shows. Did you watch game shows as a kid? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, match game. I like the ones with the celebrities. Right. You know, I like Brett Summers and Charles Nelson Riley and um, uh, Richard Dawson. I loved that. I loved that they were basically drunk. Through the whole thing. I didn't know, of course, at the time that they were drunk, but they would shoot like six a day. And by the sixth one, they were all toasted. Um, but they were fun together. And uh, I mean, Richard Dawson was kind of the outsider. He was odd man out. He didn't like them and they didn't like him. I went down the rabbit hole on YouTube once on <laughs> match game and got all the, the dirt. Right. And then he had family feud. So he he moved into the right yeah. thing from he was the very happy. He was to, sort of like leave Paul him. Lynn of Match Game, like the future yeah, he was. guy. He was, yeah. Yeah, I didn't watch um, Hollywood Squares much, though, but I did like Match Game. And I'd watch other one. I remember Baffle. I remember Password. I remember Password. Yeah. Password. The Password is. Password is. What point did you think to yourself, I want to be on stage? This is like something I want to be doing as, I mean, I mean, it doesn't have to be as a profession, but just like I'm comfortable doing right. this. I remember going to see a play at the high school when I was very young. I was so young that the memories kind of like threw gauze. And I remember being in the audit or the gym and I was sitting, I don't know where I was sitting, but I remember the lights go down and then the lights came up and it was a whole different world. And people were walking around talking to each other and I was entranced by it. I was I forget what the story was, but I remember there was somebody um, be acting as a bird in a cage and I wanted them to let the bird go free. And I was mm. so invested in it and I loved it so much. Um, uh, I, I just remember that and uh, the magic of the lights being out and then the lights coming up and it's a whole different world. And you're carried away. I saw Oklahoma on Broadway and they kept the house lights up. They kept the house lights up. Mm. You can't suspend yourself into a show to suspend your disbelief and lose yourself. It's like keeping the lights on when someone's sleeping you, you can't do it and they did it and it was a big hit so obviously they don't care what i think why did um, they do that 
I, I don't know. I don't know why they did a lot of things in that production. I, I was and one of the, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave at intermission and I don't leave very much, but I couldn't because the house lights were on and everybody you could see, you'd notice if somebody left. Um, and that was and that was an intentional artistic choice. Oh yeah, just it was like an someone was choice. falling down on the job there. Yeah, and I there was a show at Steppenwolf too lately, just recently, like in the last five years where they kept the house lights on. See if you if you like wait and then turn them on at like one moment, then it's like dramatic. Like like when Springsteen yeah. just played Wrigley Field, that you know it was getting dark and everything else, and then at some point after he had this whole monologue about death, he did Born to Run, and then all of a sudden they turned on all the lights, and then that was like woo, you know? Yeah. I mean, but Chris, in, well, it was he did it at Wrigley, right? So the, did they turn? There are no house lights at Wrigley. They're they're just like the lights for the field. So those and they've yeah. and they actually upgraded them this year, so they're brighter than they used to be. So it was oh, wow. all of a sudden like well, that's an effect, yeah, really that's illuminated. Cool like effect. I mean, Chris Jones, the Trib's uh, theater critic, wrote about how it was like one of the most effective lighting cues he's ever seen. Just that, but yeah, if he had them on the whole time, it would mm-hmm. suck. So no, I don't think you ever turn on the house lights in a theater. I don't think you should ever turn them on. Right. You want to punish the audience or something. It's like waking up somebody in the middle of a dream. If I go to a movie and they haven't turned all the lights all the way down, like it drives me crazy because sometimes yeah. they're like, yeah, no, it needs to be completely dark. I only want to see the screen dark. and that's yeah. it. I don't so want for to be, you, I, like I'm looking at the stage and I'm catching eyes with the guy across in the audience, you know, across me. I don't want to do that. So for you, it was really that sort of separation, like sort of seeing it in this sort of magical, like other world. Oh, the world. fantasy. Yeah. Another world, you know, where you lose, you kind of lose yourself. You kind of go into that place where, you know, you don't even exist. It's really just witnessing. What was the first time you were on a stage? I think. I don't know the first time, but I do remember one of my earliest memories is I was, um, it was um like a third grade Christmas pageant in Dalton, Illinois. And we, it was Christmas and I, I was the A in candle. We spelled out candle. And I remember just, I remember my, uh, my the little, little uh, uh, four stanza poem. I said, you want to hear it? Of course yes, you do. Of course. A is for air. So filled with smells of spice, smells of cake, pudding and pie, everything that is nice. Wow. You wrote that? <laughs> no, no. It was given to me. Oh, okay. It's it good, though, that you, me. you remember it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you someone who, would you sort of write stuff like, oh, I'd like to write my own material, or is it, was it more just acting and, at that point? Well, I never thought I could. I just would take what was given to me. And then as, um, like, now if something doesn't flow really well for me, I, I, I will go in there and tinker with it. Um, oh, and one of the things, and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I didn't know this, so I was kind of used to glee and guess spots that I would do that I might go, ah, can I say this instead? And sometimes I wouldn't even ask. I'd just do it. I would just maybe, you know, change the phrase of a sentence because I thought it would be funnier this way. But no, usually I would ask them. But uh, I was my first day of Maisel and I had reworked a couple of sentences and the, the word or the uh, um, script girl, her eyes went wide and she said, oh, well, let me ask. I said, really, you have to ask? And I, I was getting kind of, um, I couldn't believe it because I thought what I'd done was so great. I was expecting her to go, oh, this is great. And she's on the phone and she's in the corner and she's whispering. And she's, I think she's talking to either Dan or Amy. Oh, Dan was directing. I think she was talking to Amy. And um, and they came back and said, you you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and because you don't. Re- and then um, uh, Alex Forstein said to me um, at, at one point, she said, so 
I hear there's only one person that Amy will allow change um, a sentence. And and I said, really? I didn't realize that. And I mean, it was just a just kind of like putting the noun here instead of there. And I thought it made it funnier and it was better for the character. I don't right. know. I mean, she conceived the character, so she knows the character. But um, yeah, it was kind of a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, I'd imagine between you know, filmmakers and showrunners that there are some who want you to stick to every word and then mm-hmm. others who are like, see what feels right. I mean, Judd Apatow is the opposite of what you're talking right. about. He's just, I mean, yeah. from what from my understanding, and I've talked to him as well, it, it seems like 40-Year-Old Virgin was a lot of that was just giving you guys reign to be funny. And, yeah, and also and true to the bringing in my ear and giving me the lines. <laughs> Sometimes he say, say such and such. You know, so, yeah, he, he's great. And those those are really fun to do because of that. Amy and Dan carefully craft everything. You know, they really are meticulous. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Austin Public. What's his name? The guy that did Austin Public. Kelly. Yeah, it's Kelly. He's married to Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, David Kelly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I forgot. So David I forgot Kelly. Say. David yeah. E. Kelly. I should. David say. E. Kelly, who, who's oh, I never met, and um, I did a, um, a recurring spot on Boston Public, and he was he was never there, but. He was always up in the office, but he never came down to the set. Um, but they were absolutely like a, a, it was like a police state in terms of the script. And, you know, it was perfectly crafted. You know, he didn't want anybody messing around with it. And uh, so you had to say it word for word. So, you know, sometimes unintentionally, you know, you switch something up a little bit and they come up and go, oh, no, it's this way. <laughs> it's didn't not did not. Sorry. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, that that's specific. Were you tempted on that to be changing things or no. was it just a matter of just I wasn't. slipping in stuff? I was like, oh, that's okay. But I'll tell you what happened was, I, and this happens to every actor at some point, I'm, I'm not alone in this, where, you know, you wake up that day and for some reason you can't remember anything. And I uh, was on, sometimes it happens after lunch where <laughs> all the lines go, but I was on the stand and there was this meticulous, I'm, I'm like, all the stories I'm telling you are in my memoir, by the way. Right, so, right, right. <laughs> there was this meticulous camera move, um, you know, starting at one and then it moves this way. And you need to be finishing this line by the time it gets to you. And then you need to do that. And I was the first person and I could not remember. I had such a hard time with with my line. And then it was supposed to come back to me. And I keep talking. I'm supposed to keep talking as the camera's doing this. And so if I F it up. Back to one. Oh my God. It, and it was, it was my birthday too. <laughs> and they gave me a cake at lunch and, I, and the, the rousing happy birthday was a little um, underwhelming. The, sh- I, the I sugar went to your head. Happy with me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was a tough day. Once, when you have a tough day like that, how much is that? And cause I'm, cause I would assume that a lot of acting has to do with confidence and you yeah. know, when, oh, when you have that, do you, does that, how much, how much does that mess with you? Oh, a lot, especially if you're the guest star. You know, if you're a regular, you know, they know that you're having a rough time. But when you, you're the guest star and you show up, oh. But I remember uh, Pamela Alden was on, on the show at the time. She was playing opposing con- counsel. And she came up to me and, she, and she's, you know, how she can be like tough. She give you a tough love. And she said, don't. Don't be mad at yourself. She said, this happens to every actor. And today it's your turn. Right. So that made me feel better. That helped. Next day you were fine and didn't have a lot of lines after lunch. Yeah. Well, I think that was it. I think it was one day. It's one of those things where, you know, you want to show up and hit it out of the park because you're only there for one day. So when you started, you did a lot of scripted 
work and then also a lot of improv. Did you sort of have a feeling one way or the other of which way you wanted to go? Or was it like, I'm just going to do everything I can? Well, I do everything I can. But I mean, I preferred scripted because I didn't have any confidence in myself. Improvisationally, I saw it as being really hard and it gave an, uh, an extra helping of stress to my day, <laughs> knowing that we're going to improvise. And it always ended up fine. You know, I wish that there was a way I could go back in time and say, it's going to be just fine. You're going to be fine. You'll know what to say. You'll know what to do. But I had it. I stressed it stressed me out so much. I, uh, there's a, a guy, you know, Kyle Bornheimer is a wonderful actor. He was in um, Angel from Hell, that short lived series that I did with him and Maggie Lawson and Kevin Pollack. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And he said to me, I hate doing comedy. I said, what? You're so good at it. What are you talking about? He said, I'm so afraid I'm not going to be. And I thought that was just crazy. And I thought to myself, well, I know exactly what he's saying. You know, I do the same thing to myself around improv. And did you always think of yourself in terms of comedy as opposed to just in terms of acting and whatever that entails? I just wanted to get the next job. You know, and sometimes it would be, you know, like I played a doctor on Party of Five or <laughs> I play the coroner on some ser short-lived series. Um, uh, a lot of lab coat roles. Um, I, I did whatever, you know, would come my way. Uh, I just loved working. I loved doing it. At what point did you realize you're funny? Probably in, you know, grade school. You know, there was nothing better than, you know, saying something and people laughing. And, you know, we appreciate humor in this world. It's, it's, it's a great thing when you're feeling insecure and, you know, not seen or um, trying not to be seen. Or when you're a kid, you're, you're trying to figure out a way to go, not to be bullied and not to feel embarrassed or shamed. And being funny is a, a really good thing to find out you can do. <laughs> so like when you have like family get get togethers and stuff, were you the funny one? Good question. Yeah, probably. But I mean, I didn't try to. And I don't think it ever. I remember every once in a while, my mom was, oh, Jane, that's so funny. Um, but and people weren't. Yeah, it was mostly like people outside our five lynches that lived on Sunset Drive in Dalton. Um, like when uh, uh, other relatives would come over and go, Jane's so funny. And I would be, oh, well, my own family doesn't say that to me. Mm. When you joined Second City, what was your mm -hmm. what was your thinking in like doing that kind of improv slash sketch comedy? Because oh. people, because it's not obviously totally improv, but well, I was I was terrified. I was absolutely shocked that I got cast. Um, it was one of those things. I was auditioning for everything the way we do in Chicago. Before you become equity, you have to do general auditions, like at the Goodman. Um, who else had them? The Northlight had. Uh, generals, um, body politic had generals, and you had to call them. Uh, and Second City had, had generals as well. And you had to call them, and it would be busy, busy, busy. So you just have to put them on um, speed dial, call, 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 and then it would ring. Oh, and you'd get you'd get a slot. Uh, and so I got a slot at Second City. It was you know just me kind of spreading my net. Um, I didn't think for a second that I would get cast there. And I did. <laughs> and when, when I got the call, I was excited and then terrified in the same moment. Um, I, I, I didn't enjoy the audition. I didn't think I was very good. Um, How do you audition uh, that, for that? Uh, in, improv games. You know, I'm going to give you a first line of dialogue. Yeah, you two people go up there and now you join it. And um, I'm going to give you uh, a location and, um, you know, they just want to see how you improvise. 
Had you trained in improv at that point or was it no. you were improving on your improv? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was improving on my improv. And so and you were in the touring company. I was, yeah. I, I didn't get on a stage. I did understudy. I was uh I understudied um Bonnie, Bonnie Hunt. Hunt. Yeah, I think she's the only one I understudied now. And I was I went to Joyce um Sloan. Um, I, I would go up to her from time to time because it was told, you know, it was like, you ha- if you want to be on a main stage, you got to go to her, into her office from time to time and tell her, you know, you want to be on one of the stages. Say, you know, I I'm, I'm, just want to let you know I'd like to be considered. And so that was, I, I was told that's what you do. So every couple of months I'd, I'd go into her office. Hi, Jane. Hi, Joyce. Yeah. Just want to let you know that I'd like to be considered for one of the stages. Okay, great. And then once she put down her glasses and she said, Jane, you will never be on a stage. I, I just have to tell you, 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 you you're not going to be on a stage. Now, I don't know that she was in a ba- if she was in a bad mood or um, if it's something that it was really bothering her that I was coming in. I don't know what happened, but it just it destroyed me. And mm. then the next day I was uh, cast in a reading at Steppenwolf. I had auditioned for like a reading and um, it wasn't even at the Steppenwolf Theater. It was some at some person's house. I was smart enough to see, oh, I'm I'm being pushed elsewhere. So whatever pain I felt over that kind of stark denial uh, kind of went away because I, I saw, oh, maybe, maybe this is where I should be headed, you know, is to doing plays. Was it ultimately a positive experience being a second city or really more of sort of like you paid your dues and took your lumps and moved on? Well, if it the fact that it wasn't a positive experience is nobody's fault but my own. It was my own resistance, my own fear. Um, it was not a positive experience. There were moments that I liked it. Um, but, you know, it, I was just, you know, kind of emotionally and mentally just on the edge feeling um, just I was afraid all the time. I was afraid of getting fired. I felt like nobody liked me. <laughs> I was going through mm-hmm. that stuff that most people go through in junior high. Uh, yeah, I had I had so much going on inside of me that it couldn't be a good experience and it's not the fault of the the experience. (laughs) What was it like understudying for Bonnie Hunt? Well, great. I really loved her stuff. I really resonated with her stuff. I thought she was brilliant. I love doing her stuff. I watched her. I basically, uh, you know, um, copied her. You know, I I copied what she did and I was a pretty good mimic. (laughs) Mm. So I loved doing that. I loved stepping in for that. Although I, I, again, my insides were so turbulent that um, it wasn't enjoyable offstage, like in backstage, but it was really fun when I was on stage. By the way, I think we have a mutual friend from that period. Uh, she lives a few blocks from me, uh, Barb Wallace. Oh, yeah. I love Barb. I think I might have. Barb and I Tom. Did, yeah, I think uh, Barb and Tom. I think I did go on for Barb, too. And her stuff, too. I resonated with her stuff. Yeah, I love Barb. She's great. She was great. She was always, you know... At the time, you know, because I was in such turmoil, you look for the port and the storm. And she will, and although she's not like, you know, touchy feely, you know, oh, come to mama, she was always kind and always generous. Like she would do an improv scene with me when nobody else would. <laughs> yeah, she's like that. She's a good, kind, generous person on yeah. or off stage. So, yeah, yeah, she is. At what point uh, did you feel like you'd shaken that turmoil of this period in your life? Yeah, I think when I got to L.A., I was really happy. And also I got sober. That probably has a lot to do with it um, in connecting the dots in uh, retrospect. 
we, I moved to LA and I got this adorable little Spanish, like one bedroom apartment in a Spanish building that, you know, looked off into the Beachwood Canyon and the Bougainvillea. And, oh, it was just so California and so, so Hollywood and so wonderful. And um, so different from Dalton. Oh, so different from Dalton. And and from Chicago, which I love Chicago too, but this was just, it was like a new lease on life. And Jill Soloway lived down the street from me and a bunch of other people who were with the real live Brady Bunch uh, lived around the corner in kind of a flop house that everybody kind of lived together before we all got apartments. And Jill and I were one of the first ones to get our own. And we all lived in Beachwood and we would do um, the Beachwood Palace Jubilee. We started doing that. That was Jill's baby. And Jill basically originated everything for our group. She was such a great producer and she had such confidence. You know, she was like, oh, we'll do this and we'll do that. And then we'll do that. She got the Brady Bunch on um at the village gate, you know, and got us like when we were getting paid like $900 a week. It was crazy. Right. Um, but anyway, she got the uh, Beachwood Palace Jubilee going and we all started, you know, we hit the ground running and I was really happy. Um, I had, uh, I was going to a bunch of meetings where I met great people and, you know, the, the turbulence was, was quieting. I felt confident of my own creativity and my own ability um, and I started I started doing um, commercials and I was doing voiceovers. I loved that. And every once in a while, I'd get a guest spot on TV. It, it, and I, I was driving a little red golf, and, and, um, a Volkswagen golf. And people would say they'd like see me zipping up Beachwood Canyon going, where's Jane off to? Because I was always doing something. Well, everybody was like, you know, kind of yawning, scratching their balls and getting their first <laughs> cup of coffee. I, you know, had done 12 things. <laughs> How was the voiceover? Like, how much did that kind of sustain you during all this, too? Because that could be like a really nice sort of bread and butter. Thing. Yeah, it was great bread and butter. You know, it, it, it's the middle class voiceover actor doesn't exist anymore. You know, you're either like scraping your nickels together or you're, you know, making a ton of money. Um, yeah, there's no middle. That's like with the um, middle class in this country. I was, you know, making uh, a, a living, middle class living um, and getting insurance and I had something to do every day. And even if I wasn't doing a voiceover every day, I was auditioning every day. And it was very social. There was a, I was with ICM and we had a, they had a voiceover department. Um, that was what they call scale. It wasn't celebrities. And we'd all show up there every day and sit on the couches and wait for Jeff, our agent, Jeff Danis, to pull us into the booth. And we'd audition and um it was a, it was so much fun. And then every once in a while they say, Hey, you got a booking. You got to go to this studio out in the, um, you know, in the Valley and you're going to, you know, do some voiceovers for Safeway. <laughs> it was a great life. And you're someone who thrives on being busy. I do. I, I'm not so busy, but I'm less busy these days. I'm, I'm actually happier to be less busy, but yeah, I, uh, I, I loved moving, moving and grooving, being in the flow. Antihero is Illinois' number one IPA once again, and to celebrate, Revolution Brewing is unveiling a new sports franchise, the Antiheroes. It features four limited edition collectible cans. The familiar green Antihero can is shifting to a rotating array of new looks, depicting the hero's total dominance across four sports, football, hockey, basketball, and baseball. Collect all four starting this month and going through May of next year. To learn more, check out at Rev Brew Chicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Was Best in Show a turning point? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think so. I, yeah. I mean, if you were to write the story, I remember this. Evan Gore had this funny line. He said, there are a million stories in the naked city. This is the only one I know. So there's a million stories you can write about anything. And I think that's kind of our human nature. We love a story, but this is the story I'm telling now. Um, yeah, I think it was because it was a turning point because, first of all, my face was on a movie poster. And that had never happened before because it was an ensemble poster. My name was on a movie poster. I, I couldn't get over it. You know, after that, maybe people didn't know my name in the business, like the casting people or the producers, but people, you know, some people knew who I was more so than before Best in Show came out, for sure. Right. They recognized you and they're like, oh, that's that person. And right. Well, and you had that. And then you had 40 year old virgin was pretty close to that, if mm -hmm. I recall. But those were both big, great showcases for you. And they're also both roles in which, you know, unlike others where you're just sort of doing it word for word, you really brought a lot of your own sensibility and words into those. So, yeah, it, ironically, the thing that I was most scared of is <laughs> kind of what became two kind of significant projects for me. Did that change the way you sort of looked at, I guess, your own skill set? Because it was like, mm -hmm. oh, wait a minute, I can, I really was a good, I should have been on the main stage at Second City, damn it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't go back that way, thank God. And cause, so I don't have any uh, lingering resentment about that. Um, no. But uh, yeah, it did. I mean, there, quote unquote, success breeds a lot of confidence and you cannot understate the importance of having some confidence because without it you're just you know you're 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 at, at the mercy of the winds of fate but when you have you know some success under your belt however you define success it creates confidence and um i think it's it's kind of the what separates the wheat from the chaff is confidence well well-earned confidence not, not over confidence or Dunning-Kruger <laughs> syndrome. Um, but yeah, where you could say to yourself, yes, I can do this. And it's not like, yeah, I can do this. And they're all assholes for thinking I didn't. But just, yes, I can do this. And then right. that becomes, I think that's attractive to people who are looking to hire you. Uh, you you don't want to hire somebody who's, I yeah, I think I can do it. Could do it. You, you want someone's who exudes, maybe doesn't necessarily say the words, but exudes, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. You know, that it's just much more, much more attractive. <laughs> well, and it's also not a front you're putting up where like inside you're like, I don't know. It sounds right. like you at you that point, you really that. felt like I could do it. Like I really can yeah. do it. I'm not just going to yeah. say that to go with bravado in this yeah, situation. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds bravado. It's just a, I, I'll, I'll give you my best shot always, always. I'll, and you can smell that on somebody. Right. And also you didn't, this wasn't your twenties. I mean, you were, you were sort of, you know, a little older at, a, at an age where people sort 40s. of, there's a lot, yeah. And there's a lot of feeling of, you know, anyone, but women in particular, like, oh, you know, I'm not going to be it's looked on well in Hollywood at this. And, yeah. and none of that mattered. None of that mattered with you. I mean, it, I mean, no. you, you probably had to fight through a lot of stuff that we don't know. No, about. I didn't. But... I, yeah, maybe I didn't know about it, though. But I think it's different now, Mark. I, I, I think that that was a thing that, um, like, say, in the 80s and the 90s, and you turned 40. And, and I think that that was a thing. You were considered no longer... Um, the fuckability, I guess, <laughs> factor. You, you, and and that used to be a big deal in casting women. 
and it's not it's not so much. I mean, the English have been that way since they started doing television and film right. um, where, you know, you could see I'm not going to mention names because then I'm saying that they're ugly, but you can see normal looking women in um lead roles. And I think we do that now. I think because we're kind of very much, I think, in a in a golden age um, of especially television. There's such great content. And uh, I think that uh, we've that that whole being 40 is over the hill for a woman is is a thing of the past. And, you know, good riddance. I'm glad to see that. Right. I just talked to uh, Sally Potter, the filmmaker who just released her first album at the age of 73. Oh my gosh. And she's just like, yeah, I don't look at the calendar. It doesn't mean anything. You know, yeah. this is what I want to do now. And then she's got like another album in the works and then another one. Wow. And then also another that's, film she wants to make. That's but, just incredible. Yeah. I, I, you know, it is, I don't, you don't look at a calendar. That's really just such a smart thing. People my age are retiring and I'm still trying to figure it out. So on one hand it's annoying, but on the other hand, it's like, if you're still trying to figure it out, then maybe that's keeping you young in some way because you're still in the game or trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you're still trying to figure it out or you feel like you figured it out? I don't I don't try to figure things out anymore. But I can say about my current state is that I'm I don't have that white hot ambition that I had back when I was driving up and down Beachwood <laughs> Canyon Drive with, you know, my 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 red Volkswagen. I feel, you know, less and less inclined. I don't live in L.A. anymore. I'm less and less inclined to go into L.A. for anything. Except uh, what what did I do? I went for a doctor's appointment the other day <laughs> and I'm trying to get all my doctors up here now um, so I don't have to do that. I was in uh, New York for six months doing Funny Girl and that was really hard to be away from home. And I won't do that lightly again. I, I w- will really consider before I, I take a job out of town. And I'm not I'm not taking the one the like the, the single gigs anymore that I would do for fun and. Yeah, I'm just, I don't know that I'm even being offered a lot of them. It's almost like when I said to myself, I don't want to do this anymore. They stop asking me. But um, yeah, I, I'm uh, more inclined to stay at home. <laughs> so when you refer to that white hot ambition you had, yeah. what was the white hot ambition? What do you want? I wanted to show up at a job every day. Like I wanted a series. I wanted to settle in. I wanted to make a lot of money. <laughs> I wanted to... No, I had a job and I loved my job. Like I loved being in front of a camera and playing pretend. I loved it. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to secure something so I could do it every day. Right. That's what I was running around for. So what I ended up doing was a lot of gigs, which I I love that too. But always the brass ring for me was like when I would, oh, I did a guest spot on Dharma and Greg. And I remember being at the, the reading going, oh God, they're so lucky they get to do this. Every day they get to drive to whether it was Warner Brothers or Paramount and they have a parking space and they could get their coffee at the Starbucks on the lot. And then they walk into their dressing room and, you know, they, they do their thing and they don't have to worry about, you know, um, uh, hustling. And, which I, and then again, I did, did enjoy hustling, but I really wanted that stable job. So was Glee like the fulfillment of that? Like when you yeah. got Sue Sylvester, you're like, okay, I'm th- that's my ambition. Check it oh, out. Oh, it was, it was, it was. I was so happy. I, I, it, it did not escape me that I actually got what I wanted. I was very grateful. In fact, I wanted them to use me more. I, <laughs> I felt, you know, every once in a while, um, I would have just a couple of scenes in each in an episode, and 
we were shooting two episodes at the same time and I had the exact same lines for <laughs> two different episodes in um, kind of a, you know, Schuster in my office now, something like that. <laughs> and, and so I uh, emailed Brian the last season and I said, listen, we've got a few episodes left. I'm bored. If you can figure out a way to use me more, that would be great. And he did. I had my head shaved. I had to dress up as a skunk. I became like Pepe Le Pew. He gave me the craziest, most fun stuff to do. And I am I'm so grateful to him for that. I had a great last four episodes. Did they come to you at some point and say, hey, you're going to do physical with Olivia Newton-John? Or Yes. That was just like crazy. Yeah, that was a dream come true. But Ryan and I bonded on our love of Olivia Newton-John and yeah, I just loved her. Just loved her. So did she, did her getting cast come out of that? Or was it just sort of like, hey, we just happened to come up with this? And Well, I think he, I think it came out of that. I remember our first Glee party. We were at a steakhouse and the, the show had been picked up and they gathered us all for a dinner. And the songwriter, Olivia Newton-John's songwriter, who wrote Hopelessly uh, Devoted to You mm. and a bunch of uh, B-16 a bunch of her songs. He was there, and I forget his name. His name is John something. He's an Australian songwriter. And um, Ryan knew him and said, that's him. And we got, uh, we went over and introduced ourselves and said, we're doing this show. Do you think Olivia would do it? And he said, yeah, I don't know, but she, she loves to have a good time. So why don't you get a hold of her? And he gave us her information. And then Ryan probably used that to um, contact her, but it didn't happen for a couple of seasons. John Farrar. That there you go, John Farrar. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a nice guy he was. So when they came to you and said, "All right, we got a living Newton John," were you just like, "Oh my god"? I was nervous more than anything. I ruined things for myself sometimes, <laughs> and it turned out there was nothing to be nervous about. It was the night I knew she would be nice, but I didn't know if you know. I, I am socially such a goof sometimes, but we had such a great time. We had a lovely day on the set together, and we laughed, and we continued um, emailing and. She sent me her latest book and signed it. And yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I got that time in with her. She was a real bright light. She was just mm. as, just like you thought. Yeah. You know, looking at her, you go, I think that's a bright light. She, she was. W were there other people you were nervous to meet or act with? Always. Um, Meryl Streep, I was out of my mind. I was so nervous. I used to walk up and down. I stayed at the Empire Hotel in New York. <laughs> And I would walk up and down 8th Avenue, running my lines. And it was a nervousness that I would like go up on my lines with her. And um, yeah, I made it really hard on myself. And then it worked out. It didn't happen, of course. Yeah, You were fine. I was fine. <laughs> Tell me about also being, being back in New York, aside from, you know, the being displaced from home when you're doing Funny Girl. What was sort of the charge like of being on stage after having done so much, you know, stuff on screens for so long? Oh, I loved it. I loved the rehearsal process. I love hanging out with actors. Um, you know, there were really frustrating things about Funny Girl, uh, that production, but the act of doing the theater and the relationships with my fellow actors, in particular, my poker ladies, Deb Cardona and Tony DeBono, um, who, who I'm still very close with, and all the other actors just was a delight. There's something really special about putting on a play together and putting on a, you know, opening a play on Broadway. That's just, it defies definition um, because it's just so special and so electrifying. And so I, I love that. Love that 
what was frustrating about it? Ugh, rather not say. Okay. <laughs> Did you sort of flash back on again being a kid and you know being on the other side of the lights are on and stage always. and off in the house and yeah, always. I always put myself in the position of the audience, you know, going, oh, they're so excited right now. The overture, oh, they're excited. This is going to be great. Did you shoot only murders in L.A. or New York? No, New York, New York. So I, I love going there for that. I love those guys. I just had dinner with some of them with Steve Martin and John Hoffman. Are We live in this neighborhood. It's really great. The reveal of Steve Martin's uh, stand-in was you was really great. You know, someone who's a fan of both of yours, it just was like, oh, it was just very funny. Oh. When, when it was presented to you, were you like, oh, that's... that's oh, yeah. You know what? Um, it was a, a, an interesting thing, um, how that happened. I uh, rented a house while my house was being worked on. And I had this cute little house in West Hollywood. And I rented it from this uh, woman, Kristen Newman, who is a, a writer and a showrunner. And she is a writer uh, on... Um, only murders. And when they were starting up, she sent me an email and said, Hey, would you be interested in playing Steve's stand in? And your name would be um, Saz Pataki. And I said, You had me at Saz. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got that. Was, was that, was that a set where, where you, you read every line or were you able to? You um, know, yeah. Of... Oh, yeah. You know, I don't want to improvise. <laughs> Believe me. It's the last thing I want to do. Every once in a while, I might say, Oh, can I change this? Because it, it it's more trippingly on the tongue um, and that, yeah, I'm not looking to change scripts. <laughs> I think there will be the sort of sense that it depends on the comedian, but like someone like Steve Martin, I imagine is actually seems like he's very controlled in what he's doing as opposed to, you know, winging it like you would maybe think some others would be. But he's like, oh, you just right. get those funny people together. You just let them be funny. But there actually yeah. has to be some. Oh, no. Yeah. You have to be it. a script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's very well written. So, yeah, we're. Uh, I mean, as far as I know, I know that I, I'll speak for myself. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to change a script. Believe me. Just every once in a while, I might say, you know, let's, could I, could I mess with this sentence? When you think of like sort of your peak moments performing, are they in front of a camera, in front of an audience? What are they? Right now, what draws to mind is when we do um, uh, the Christmas music show that I do, Swinging Little Christmas. Mm. with um, the Tony Guerrero Quintet and Kate Flannery, who was Meredith the Drunk in the office, and Tim Davis, another singer. He was the vocal arranger on Glee. The eight of us travel around the country going to you know little venues like city wineries and some bigger, and we do our Swinging Little Christmas, which is a late 50s, early 60s kind of uh, Christmas music, and that is a freaking blast. And um, the audiences have so much fun and it's Christmas and, you know, we love it. And we, we're very aware of how, you know, the rarefied air we're breathing when we, you know, um, when we do those shows. It, it's a real delight. It's, it's, it's the high point of what I'm doing right now. How long are you out for each year doing that? We do it about a month. So we start like right after Thanksgiving and we'll come home 16th or 17th of December. And um so that's actually less than a month, like three weeks. Uh, and we uh, basically, you know, rent a van. We fly sometimes, um, you know, but we're, we're really on the road doing our thing. That gives you more joy than just about anything at this point. Yeah, it does. It does. What, is, what is it about that? It's about the music. It's the um, band is so good. And it's our three part harmonies are such a joy to do. Just so much fun. I love nothing more than singing with a group of people, whether it's a choir group, which I still do occasionally, 
um, a mighty wind when we did a mighty wind, especially right. when we toured with it. Um, and then singing with uh, Tim and Kate and with those guys behind us, nothing better. It's so the, the harmonies are so tight. You know, I love three part harmony. I love any harmony, but the, the roaches, you know, are such a in fact, we do um, the Alleluia Chorus and basically ripped it off from them. Yeah, they have a great Christmas record, too. We Three Kings. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I think it's from like 1990, something like that. But check it oh, out. Okay. It'll, okay. That'll be like the, the intersection of everything you love. Yeah, exactly. Christmas music, three-part harmonies, and, and uh, yeah, the roaches. In terms of filming stuff right now, you're 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 probably kind of stuck. Is it, do you have like things that are just kind of all lined up for when the strike ends? No, I, I took the summer off purposefully. So that worked out for me. Um, but uh, no, and I don't ever have things lined up. My life seems to be, you know, can you be in New York next week to do this? You know, can you go into L.A. and do this? I, I don't have like projects stacked up. And there's like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or Party Down. They don't. They didn't have anything like about to shoot when this was all happening. No, because you had sort of new seasons of each. Maisel is over. Yeah. Um. And uh, Party Down, we haven't. Uh, we don't know if we're getting picked up for another shot. It was fun seeing you and Maisel playing a game show host again. Right. And Isn't then funny. The game show stuff. It's not scripted, but I imagine that's still on hold too. I don't know. That might be a different contract, but I mean, I'm not doing it. We, we've done all of our weakest links for, you know, could be for two years. I don't know when we'll get picked up again, but yeah, that's not like they're waiting for us, but I don't know if that's the same contract. Do you have like dreams of, you know, doing Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune no. or bringing back Password? Do you have like game show aspirations beyond no, what you've I already don't. done? No, no, not, not that I would say no to them, but. Um, I don't, I don't have, I don't have any aspirations. <laughs> I feel like the game show thing again is, is like something that totally takes advantage of your improv skills. Even though um, almost everything is on the teleprompter or in my ear, there does a need to be, and you know where I learned how to do this was doing home shopping, home television um, shopping in the middle of the night was being good on my feet for that kind of stuff, being able to adjust and kind of keeping the proceedings under control and keeping them moving in a certain direction. Um, I did home shopping in Chicago and in, in Glenview um, in the middle of the night. I was the middle of the night person. And we took live phone calls. <laughs> so you can imagine the phone calls that would come in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, it was called America Shopping Place and it was in the 80s. And, uh, you know, we'd be given an item, you know, in a notebook and maybe 10 uh, qualities of that item. And we'd have like seven or eight minutes to riff on it. And, you know, you had to fill that time. You couldn't just stop and look into the camera. And you'd have a co-host and you'd, you know, kind of riff back and forth. And it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. But they were trying, and I, this is in my book too, I hate to repeat myself, but they were <laughs> trying to replace me the whole time. I was the only one who would come in in the middle of the night and they would audition my replacements on air with me. <laughs> And I would be helping them like, oh, stand over here and now look over there. And uh, they yeah, they wanted they wanted me out. You know, I was not uh, your typical. Um, I think they wanted more like a model type, hmm. not like. <laughs> so so you were a little you were more cooperative with them than you were with like Ms. Maisel. Um, oh, I was happy was, to have the to, job. I was still cooperative with Ms. Maisel, but I wanted the job. I, I was like, whatever you want me to do. 
Yeah. No, I was thinking. I was thinking of the scene where the episode where where Miss Maisel's oh, right. uh, warming yeah. up the crowd, and it's like, yeah. ah, this is a little bit too funny. What are you laughing yeah. at? So yeah, right. What's what's competitive? So funny? Yeah. No, she couldn't stand that. In general, and that's that's sort of showing comedy from like an earlier generation. Did you have right. sort of ingrained in you for a while that sense that comedy is like a man's game? No, I didn't. I never noticed that it was sans women. <laughs> I didn't really know. I didn't make note of it. Like um, uh, probably at the time, um, uh, Rosemarie was the only like really funny woman on a television series that I would watch, uh, you know, from the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, but I, I never clocked it. I never I never thought to myself, oh, there are a few women. Uh, how am I going to do this? I never really looked at it that way. Yeah, you know, other sec- people have different feelers that way. I just didn't. Right. I mean, like Second City started off, it was more male, and then they eventually became sort of equal um, mm-hmm. on that. But it was probably when you were there, it was still probably more like four and two. Two women and three five and three. men. Yeah, yeah, five and two. I think it's three and three now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, then again, working with, you know, Soloways and doing all that, it was very much not that, of course. Yeah, a lot of women. So. Yeah. Yeah. Map out like the next five years, what happens in them. I don't. I don't map anything out. I have no desire. I never did. I never did. I never had goals. I was always really just kind of in the moment. How do I get this? Oh, if I go there, I'll get that. I'll do that. And then I'll do that. And not even I'll get that. I didn't even have that as a... did That d- didn't factor into why I did things. I'm just kind of impulsive. And um, I would pretend to have goals. Like, what are your goals? Oh, well. Because <laughs> I thought you should. But I... I didn't, and I don't. Are you concerned about the strike, or do you think it'll be fine? A little bit. Um, I'm a little less concerned, and I don't know exactly why right now. I think ultimately greed is so strong in our culture that they would starve us out. And I think if the writers were up alone by themselves, they would starve them out. They even said that. They said we're going to wait till right. they start lo- losing their homes, and I, you know, I, I, it does. I, I don't think for a moment that was like exaggerated. I think that's that's the plan. And then when we joined them, it it complicated that. But yeah, I think it, the greed is just so strong. The bottom line dollar is um is so in our culture that even really nice people think it's cool. <laughs> what are, what have you been able to do more of that you maybe didn't have time to do? before when you're just busy, busy, busy? Well, I've really become intimate with my bird feeder and the um, population of uh, critters. I can sit and, I can sit and watch them for hours. You know, the, the many different birds, the chipmunks, even the rats <laughs> that come in to eat, eat some of the uh, bird feed that's fallen on the ground. Um, Have you named your critters? No, I haven't named them. And it's funny, every once in a while, uh, not every once in a while, often, a squirrel gets in there because I can't figure out how, where to put this thing where a squirrel couldn't get so every once in a while. And I start policing nature. I like, go get out of there, get out of there. And um, so uh, I've been trying just to allow what happens to happen um, and kind of deciding what I, sh- if anything, I should do about the rats that come in. <laughs> so I don't want them breeding and then coming into my house. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, the the nature, the, the entertainment nature will never be replaced by AI. You'll always have yeah. the actual, oh, yeah. hopefully you'll have the actual squirrels and even the rats. So yeah. it's really great to talk to you. I talked to you for the Tribune a long time ago, but it's, you know, fun to watch your you know work and your career and everything else. I've always just enjoyed it so much and oh, felt like you were one of our own. You know, when you see someone early and then, you know, and then you kind of watch them develop, you, you have this feeling of ownership about them. Not that I oh. own you, but, but oh, you nice. like, you're like, you're like, you're the home team. And, and I told my, uh, my older daughter, um, that I was talking to, she's like, oh my God. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's a wrap on episode 100 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Jane Lynch for being my special guest. You can watch her in all sorts of stuff that you know about and some that you don't. Go to janelynchofficial.com for information about her and her work. The site also lists the itinerary for her Christmas concerts this year. The tour starts in Hanover, Pennsylvania on November 30th and includes three nights at Joe's Pub in New York City, December 1st through 3rd, two nights at Boston City Winery, December 5th and 6th, and two nights at the Rouse Center for the Arts in Crystal Lake, Illinois, December 9th and 10th. Also, pick up her album, A Swingin' Little Christmas, which, like the concerts, features Kate Flannery, Tim Davis, and the Tony Guerrero Quintet. Follow Jane Lynch on Twitter at Jane Marie Lynch and Instagram at Jane Lynch Official. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who does his job with glee and is never the weakest link. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks. Thanks.